This is 99% Invisible. I'm Roman Mars. Off the east coast of mainland Canada is the island of Newfoundland. The island is as far east as you can go and still be in Canada. So far east, in fact, that it has its own time zone, a half an hour later than anywhere else in North America. If you've seen a photograph of the island, it's probably the one that went viral last year of a small village on the eastern coast. In the foreground are rolling hills and a couple of houses. In the background, a gigantic iceberg floats by on the choppy blue sea. Yeah, icebergs float by occasionally, but that one was actually scary big. And nice pronunciation of Newfoundland, by the way. A lot of people say Newfoundland, and it's a bit of a sore spot with us locals. That is Newfoundland native Luke Quinton. And I want to take us to a different part of the island, to a little town on the northeastern side called Gander. Now, looking back, I was all of 20 years old at the time, though I thought I was ancient. It's Christmas Eve, 1972, and Ian Blackmore is working. My name is Ian Blackmore, and I was a photographer with the Gander Beacon after I finished uh, high school and before I went to college in Toronto. Ian's co-worker, Gerald Vokey, was an editor on the same local paper. He's going to help tell this story. It was Christmas Eve, and their mother was you know, getting things ready for Santa Claus. Gerald was home that day in 1972. His family was getting ready for Christmas, and he wanted to get his daughter out of the house. So they decided to go hang out at the local airport. As you do. As you do when you live in a tiny town in Canada, and the airport is the best thing around. Also, this is not a normal airport, but we'll get to that soon. You never knew with the airport being up there who might come through at any given time, regardless of the hour of the day or night or whatever. And when Gerald got to the Gander Airport, he started asking around. I asked the, the, the security there, you know, what was going on. And they said, uh, Fidel Castro is here. And I said, what? Fidel Castro was there in the airport, and he was more or less just hanging out. I had dinner with him. Yeah, in the, uh, well, the dining room, naturally. He had on his uh, traditional fatigues and his combat boots. Green fatigues, no medals or nothing, just a plain uniform. Turned out Castro had a pretty long layover in Gander, so at some point he basically says, give me a tour of your town. He wanted to see the town. So Ian and Gerald and Fidel Castro all pile in some cars and go driving around the little town until they come across a kid sledding. There's a young fellow with his dog and probably another friend there, and they were taking turns going down on their toboggan. Of course, Mr. Castro decided that that looked interesting and figured he might see what the thing was and how it worked, not being that familiar with snow. Castro gets on this sled and starts down the hill, and Ian Blackmore snaps a picture. I got ahead of him before he started on the slide down, so I was in position for to catch him on his way down and, well, photograph him. I didn't catch him. (laughs) Ian Blackmore's photograph of Fidel Castro sledding would end up in Time magazine. And the amazing thing about this anecdote isn't how unique it was for Gander, but how totally normal. The Gander airport was used to hosting really famous people from all over the world. It wasn't just some tiny airport in some tiny town. It was a very large, very important airport in some tiny town. But before we hear how this place came to be, I want to take you inside the airport because it's an incredible building. 
Okay, we're here in the Gander Airport. The Gander Airport is such a mid-century modern time capsule that I actually think I have to bring up some lounge music right now. This place is straight out of an episode of Mad Men. You know, Mad Men with Newfoundlander accents. If you follow me across here, over on the apron. Jerry Cram is a commissionaire at the Gander Airport. The job is part fixer, part security guard. Jerry will probably be the one to give you a tour if you ask. The terrace flooring is all from Italy. Uh, right here is what we call the birds of welcome. Jerry is pointing at a bronze sculpture of seven birds that greets you when you walk into the lounge. The blue and the gray furniture is all from the late 50s, early 60s. The International Lounge of the Gander Airport is this big, airy space, super high ceilings, and when you walk in, you're immediately awash in the orangey glow of the 1950s. The vinyl chairs and couches are arranged in U-shaped seating areas. They were designed by famous mid-century designers like Charles and Ray Eames and Robin Bush. The Gander International Lounge has been called the single most important modernist room in Canada. Even the bathrooms are their own amazing time capsule. The women's restroom especially. Jerry calls out a warning so that we can go in. Male guard! Oh, we're good to go. (laughs) This is is not a gross airport bathroom. It's beautiful mid-century luxury. There's a row of swivel chairs in front of a counter and a wall-sized mirror. It has two showers because, yes, people used to shower at the airport. There is two showers in this room as well as in the men's. But now you can say you were in the washroom that the queen powdered her nose in on June the 19th, 1959. When this international lounge of the Gander Airport opened in 1959, the queen of England herself came for the opening. And yeah, the townspeople hobnobbed with her too. A lot has happened in this airport. And the story of how it came to be and what it's become is really also a story about the history of air travel. Why Newfoundland? Because it's the shortest way. Come here, let me show you. You've got to look at it on a globe. If you trace a direct course from New York to Paris, you'll see that it takes you right over Newfoundland. Remember, Lindbergh went this way and he didn't have any gas In the 1920s, before Gander existed, Newfoundland's grassy fields were the jumping-off points for transatlantic daredevil pilots. Amelia Earhart, Alcock and Brown, Lindbergh, all of them. Because it was so far east, it made sense to start there if you were worried about getting across the Atlantic with enough fuel. Eventually, the British government, which controlled Newfoundland at the time, started to take note. Maybe there was something to this whole air travel thing. In 1936, the British chose what was then basically a patch of woods on the eastern side of Newfoundland as the site for over a million square yards of runways. By the spring of 1938, the Gander Airport was fully operational, but the massive runways were mostly unused. There just weren't enough planes in operation that could actually survive the crossing of the Atlantic Ocean. It was a very, very risky journey. In the two decades before the war, only 100 planes had crossed the Atlantic. 50 others had tried and failed. 40 people had died. Then in 1939, World War II began in Europe, and Allied forces wanted as many fighter planes as they could get their hands on. Americans and Canadians had been shipping planes over by boat, but that wasn't working out so well. Uh, they were being torpedoed by the uh, by German submarines and whatnot, so they were losing more airplanes than, than were actually making it over to the U.K., That's historian and former air dispatcher Dean Cull. And he says to get planes to the UK, the British had to come up with a new idea. 
they would have to put a what we call a bladder inside. It was a spare fuel tank, basically, to give them enough, uh, enough fuel to make the crossing. The process of flying the planes from Gander to Scotland began in 1940 and was called the Ferry Command. The first crossing was seven planes, and it took place on a freezing night in November. The pilots had to fly in the dark because lights could alert the Germans. Miraculously, all seven made it. But that was just the first day. Over the course of the war, 20,000 planes were brought to Gander to be flown across the Atlantic for the war. Some days there'd be 100 airplanes uh, that would go over. And uh, Churchill was even quoted at one point, uh, he referred to Gander as the largest aircraft carrier in the North Atlantic. Uh, I guess it was the, the turning point of the war, really, for, for Britain. Gander was making history, even though at the time there was no actual town of Gander. There was no town site. There were people living between intersections of runways, and that's where the Americans and the Canadians and the British had built wartime buildings. Frank DeBow is a former air traffic controller at Gander and historian of the airport. And he says the early town of Gander was basically just a few living quarters right next to the runways. I would say, you know, 100 yards or so, or even closer than that. And they made a hell of a lot of noise, those, uh, those aircraft. Because the Gander Airport started as a military operation, it wasn't until the war was over and civilian air travel began that they decided to build a separate town away from the runways. And then in the late 1950s, the Canadian government built that fancy international lounge at the airport. In 1958, just a year before the new lounge opened, jets like the de Havilland Comet and the DC-8 were introduced. These planes could make the long trek across the Atlantic without having to stop and refuel in Gander. But they took a while to go mainstream. And for years, Gander served as a stopping place for international travel. These were the glory days of Gander, when celebrities from all over the world would wind up stopping through on their way to or from the States. The Beatles' first step in North America wasn't in New York. It was in Gander, Newfoundland. The Gander Airport became by far the hottest place to be in Gander. Oh, yeah. You used to go up and hang around up there and watch the... Watch the people coming in on the planes and, you know, who was there and ride on the escalator. It was a hot spot for fun. John Baird grew up in Gander. You know, everything revolved around the airport. I mean, that was one industry town. It's a lot quieter place now than it was then. In the 1960s, air travel was still pretty exclusive. A lot of North American tourists still traveled to Europe by ship. But celebrities and heads of state from all over the world were paying big bucks to fly. And many of them were stopping in Gander in that beautiful mid-century modern lounge. A lot of famous people who came through the Gander airport tried to go unnoticed. But some really wanted a cocktail from the bar. And if they were in the airport bar, they probably were interacting with the people of Gander. Security was pretty loose back then, to say the least. I met... Marilyn Monroe. What was that like? Oh, <laughs> I go back and do it again. <laughs> Bob Hope and kings and queens of, of various countries. The king of Jordan, king of Saudi Arabia, Mikhail Gorbachev. Macho man, Randy Savage. I met President Bush. That's the former mayor of Gander, Claude Elliott. I, I met uh, the Queen of England. I flew with Prince Philip on his chopper. The locals also love to tell a story about Frank Sinatra trying to cut in line at the airport bar and getting told to go to the back. But as time went on, the lounge wasn't just a scene of people drinking cocktails on their way to London. 
by the late 1960s, most commercial jets could make it across the Atlantic without needing to refuel. But Gander was still serving an important role in international travel, especially to communist countries who couldn't fly to the U.S. or use its airspace. Gander was the major stopping point between Moscow and Havana, but this occasionally invited defectors seeking asylum in Canada. And in particular, there was a fair number from Cuba. That's Gary Vokey, Gerald Vokey's son. And he says sometimes people would get off their plane coming from Cuba or Bulgaria or some other communist country and seek asylum. Not that this was easy. Vokey remembers witnessing one incident in particular in which a woman from a Cuban flight attempted to escape down the lounge escalator to Canadian authorities while the Cuban flight crew tried to stop her. They had the lady hold by her feet. The Canadians had her hold by her head and her arms, so she was upside down going up the escalator. And uh, she had a dress on. Her dress was back over her head. It nearly turned violent, and it was, for me, I mean, even as a kid, it was one of the most uncanny things I've ever seen. For residents of Gander, life was also about living alongside people from all over the world who worked for the airlines. Aeroflot, the Russian airliner, had over 150 crew and flight planners in Gander alone. Gander, in its day, was a lot more multicultural than probably some of the bigger cities in Canada. The the Brits had people there, the Germans had people there, there was, you know, Canadian military, so... Cubans and Russians. Cubans and Russians. Everybody mingled. In particular, the Cubans were, were famous for buying, uh, buying bicycles and, and shipping them back to, uh, back to Cuba. The airport turned Gander into an amazingly diverse place. And beyond that, it was a portal from the town to the rest of the world. There are stories about local people with the right connections hopping on last-minute flights to Cuba and Europe and New York City just by clearing it with the captain. And maybe it was all those trips to New York that prepared the people of Gander for September 11, 2001. As Matt just mentioned, we have a breaking news story to tell you about. Apparently, a plane has just crashed into the World Trade Center here in New York City. It happened just a few moments ago. Apparently, we have very little... Stephanie, my wife, said uh, she had the the news on in the morning, and she said, it looks like an airplane uh, crashed in uh, one of the buildings in New York. On the morning of September 11th, an unprecedented decision was made to close all American airspace. Hundreds of flights were diverted to land at airports in Canada. I was only on about 10 minutes when the town manager called me and said, uh, you better come in, uh, we may be getting some planes. Canada Air India 113, we go to Toronto. The Air India 113 center uh, negative, you must now land at Gander at turn right heading 320. As the planes came in one by one, the people of Gander gathered outside the airport to watch. Well, it was quite remarkable, actually, because you would see airplanes, airplane, aircraft lights, uh, you know, miles and miles and miles in the distance, uh, all lined up uh, to land, right? So it was quite a remarkable scene. 38 planes and nearly 7,000 passengers ended up in Gander. They called the stranded visitors the plane people. But the plane people weren't there just for a few hours. They were there for three days, and they had nothing. The passengers weren't allowed to take their luggage, so they had arrived in Gander with nothing but the clothes on their backs. After each passenger was registered with the Red Cross, a loose network of volunteers from Gander and nearby communities provided thousands of hot meals, toiletries, and prescriptions to the plane people. 
Bus drivers who were on strike came back to work to drive them around town. It was a job Gander was born to do. And our job here, our people came true and said, we're here, we're here to help you until you're ready to leave. Gander had 500 hotel rooms and 7,000 new guests. The population of the little town had nearly doubled overnight. And so the residents stepped up and took people in. And yes, there was people took people into their homes. Even though we were told not to do that because at that time, they didn't know how widespread that this terrorist attack would be. So this is a foolish question. Did they have enough food? Oh God, you, nobody runs out of food in Newfoundland. <laughs> <laughs> Some of the stranded passengers ended up forming strong bonds with their hosts. At least one marriage is reported to have come out of all this, and a bunch of friendships. One group of plain people who stayed at a high school started a scholarship for it that's now worth over a million dollars. The passengers organized all this on their flight home after they finally got cleared to leave Gander. Even today, we still have people come back, visit people in people's homes that stayed here. We have people in Gander that goes to the U.S., this 9-11 story is sort of famous because of the Broadway musical Come From Away, in which the Gander mayor, Claude Elliott, is a central character. And there's just five or six of us from the community that's portrayed in that play, but we represent this whole community. Is it a good likeness, or...? Well, he's not like me. I mean, I'm beautiful looking, but, uh, <laughs> but he's not like me. But uh, I, for an American, he's done a pretty good job trying to imitate a Newfoundlander. It used to be one of the biggest airports in the world. And next to it is a town called Gander. Welcome to the rack if you come from away. You probably understand about half of what we say. They say no man's an island, but an island makes a man. Especially when one comes from one like Newfoundland. These days, the Gander Airport is pretty quiet. Do people, does, it's never quite as packed, I guess, as it once was. Uh, no. That's Luke and Jerry Cram inside the airport. Uh, we still get international traffic today, but uh, nowhere near the extent. Before, they had to stop somewhere to refuel, refuel, but now you got the planes that can go on without having to stop. St. John's, the capital of Newfoundland, has the island's major international airport now. And aside from a few daily flights, Gander's traffic is mostly military planes and emergency landings. But between the military base, the air traffic control center, and the airport, Gander has found ways to stay afloat. A few years ago, the airport authority was thinking of tearing down the international lounge and building something smaller and much, much uglier. But there was a huge outcry from architecture enthusiasts around the world. Full disclosure, I was one of them. In the end, thanks to organizing by people like Luke, the mid-century time capsule that is the International Lounge was saved. And Jerry Cram promises it will stay that way. Mark your words. Mark my words. But I'm not always going to be around either, so... (laughs) (laughs) And so, as long as Jerry Cram is around... The International Lounge stands as a kind of monument to a bygone era when flying was luxurious, when you didn't have to take your shoes off to go through security, when actually there was no such thing as security, when the bar in your airport terminal was open to anyone, ticket or not. And if Sinatra cut in front of you in line, you just tell him, please, wait your turn.
what do those big numbers painted on airport runways really mean? Kurt Kolstad will decode them for you right after this. We often don't think of winter as a time of growth or creation, but if you think about it, it's the perfect time to create your own website because you're cooped up, you're thinking about being productive, and now Squarespace can help you do it. With Squarespace, you can take your cool ideas, your creative content, your services and goods, and you can turn them into a beautiful website in just a few clicks. This is because their easy-to-use templates are created by world-class designers, and then you have the ability to customize the look and feel and the different settings for your own needs. For example, my site, romanmars.com, I made with Squarespace. The landing page features a close-up of me talking to a microphone, so it has my, you know, my very handsome beard. But if I should ever shave it, I don't have to wait for my web guy to change the photo. I can do it myself, and maybe the next photo will feature my soulful eyes. On one of the pages, I've also picked out some of my favorite episodes of 99% Invisible to share, and the audio is conveniently embedded, even on mobile. Try it yourself. Go to squarespace.com slash invisible for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code invisible to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So a few years back, the Oakland International Airport changed two of its runway numbers. 27 became 28 and 29 became 30. 99PI's own Kurt Colstead lives in beautiful downtown Oakland, California, and he is here to explain why it was really important that they make that change. First, though, you have to understand how runway numbering works. Airports around the world use this universal system, and it's based off Earth's magnetic north. So basically, you figure out the magnetic compass direction of the runway up to 360 degrees, and then you round that off to the nearest 10 and then drop the zero at the end, and then you have your number. Okay, so you end up with a set of numbers 1 to 36 instead of 10 to 360. Right, that's it. And each runway has a complementary number, too, that goes in the other direction. And that's, of course, 180 degrees different. So runway number 18 is the flip side of runway number 36, and so on and so forth. And if you see letters, that actually means there are multiple runways running parallel to each other. So L is for the left, R for the right, and if there's one in the middle, they uh, use letter C for center. So by necessity, if it was 18L, the other side would read 36R. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Exactly. That all makes sense. Though it's not obvious to me why they'd use compass directions rather than just numbering them one, two, and three. Well, even with all the high-tech stuff that guides flights these days, magnetic directions serve as a kind of backup system to help planes land in case something goes wrong. And they also make it easy for pilots on the ground to double-check that their runway and compass align before they take off. So they know they're in the right place doing the right thing. Right. So if all else fails, you can use a compass. But then it begs the question, why do the numbers ever change? Now, that's the really crazy part. I I knew that the planet's magnetic poles reversed every few hundred thousand years or so. But there are also these smaller but significant shifts going on constantly. And we tend to think of north in terms of true north, that, you know, stable point at the top of a globe or a map. But a compass reading of magnetic north differs from one place to the next. And it moves around all the time, too, driven by the flows of the Earth's molten metal outer core. And when those cumulative changes are big enough... 
then the airports have to repaint their runways or the numbers don't make sense anymore. Right. And it can be a small amount of change, right? It could just be it goes from 0.4 to 0.6 and that tips it in the other direction. Right. Because it rounds, right. And these shifts happen even faster, closer to the poles. So airports that are really far to the north or really far to the south actually have to make these changes more often. (laughs) So scientists have to keep an eye on this for their own sake, because if they're traveling on a plane, they want to make sure these things are right. Right. They do. (laughs) And, And it turns out it's a huge project. There are magnetic monitoring stations all around the world and satellites that also help keep track. And I was actually just talking to my dad about this. He's a geophysicist. And apparently the poles may also reverse entirely again soon, but it's hard to say. And when that happens, it could actually cause problems for the world's electrical grids, among other things, not to mention causing an entire repainting of airport codes. <laughs> That's the least of their problems. When, they, when you say soon, what do you mean by soon? Like, should I be prepping right now? Well, if you look at the historical record, we're actually overdue already, (laughs) but it could still be thousands of years out. Soon in, you know, geological time can be pretty long in terms of human time. Okay. So buy your cans of soup is what you're saying. (laughs) Yeah. Just a couple cans. (laughs) Well, it's good to know. Uh, Meanwhile, if you want to geek out with more about runway fonts and other flight related design details, you can find Kurt's article on our website. It's 99pi.org. Invisible was produced this week by Luke Quinton and senior producer Katie Mingle. Mix and tech production by Sharif Youssef. Music by Sean Rial. Delaney Hall is the senior editor. Kurt Colstead is the digital director. The rest of the team is Emmett Fitzgerald, Avery Truffleman, Taryn Mazza, and me, Roman Mars. We are a project of 91.7 KALW in San Francisco and produced on Radio Row in beautiful downtown Oakland, California. 99% Invisible is part of Radiotopia from PRX, a collective of the best, most innovative shows in all of podcasting. We are supported by our listeners, just like you. You can find 99% Invisible and join discussions about the show on Facebook. You can tweet at me at Roman Mars and the show at 99pi.org. We're on Instagram, Tumblr, and Reddit too. But you're always welcome over at our place at 99pi.org. Radio Topia from PRX.